All right, we're going to go ahead and begin this morning. If you have notes that you've been taking as we've been going through this class in your notebook, we are going to um, do a bit of a review today. Pages 17 to 21, we are going to review. And if there's uh, still time, we'll jump into the new stuff, the stuff that Katrina's handing out. We'll get on to page 22 if there's time today. So, yeah, in reference to Christ specifically, this is talking about the Son of God before He took on a human body. How long was Christ alive before He took on a human body anyway? Oh, good, good. Yeah, it's a bit of a trick question. Good job. Um, he was never created, right? I, I was just thinking about this today or yesterday as I was out on one of my walks about how Christ is Lord. I mean, that's clear, right? Over and over again in the New Testament, Christ is proclaimed as Lord. Uh, I was thinking about my passage for this morning and how that connects with last week's passage in 2 Corinthians, when Paul says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ as Lord. Do you think he had in his mind anywhere that Christ was a creature? (laughs) How can you be Lord if you're a creature, right? No starting point. Well, that's right. I think that's what Paul would say. How could you think of the Son of God as a creature? He had no beginning. See, if he had a beginning, he's a creature. He was made at a certain point in time. But he's eternal. He's eternally the Son of God. So we're talking about the existence of the Son of God before he took on a body. What was he doing before he took on a body? Was he just waiting until he would be born of Mary? Or was he doing stuff? Okay, well, now you said that. Now you have to tell me what he was doing. Okay, what was he doing, Mandy? Very good. Yeah, so the first thing we can say is he was in glory with the Father. How do we know that? Look down at your notes, page 17. You got any references jotted down there, particularly from the Gospel of John? 17.5. Let's all turn there. John 17.5. On a review lesson, it might be kind of hard to jump into the Bible, so I'm just going to force it. Uh, John 17, let's look at, actually, verses 1 through 5. John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer is what it's called. Would someone read verses 1 through 5 for us? John 17, 1 to 5. Right, so every time we look at a passage in Scripture, there's always so much to see. We could stop and dwell on any particular word or phrase. But verse 5 is key. Jesus asks the Father to glorify Him together with the Father, with the glory that He had with the Father before creation, before the world was. And when you cross-reference that with, say, Isaiah 42.8, that's just a really critical passage because in Isaiah 42.8, it says that God won't do what? God does not share his glory with another. And so Jesus existed eternally as God, sharing in the glory that only God has, that he doesn't share with any creature, that he doesn't share with any other being. Okay? So that's important. But Mandy, you said there was another thing besides dwelling in glory with the Father. What else was Jesus doing pre-incarnate? Creation. Jesus is the creator, isn't he? You see that in the New Testament explicitly, that Jesus was creating. 
And there was one more role that he had. What else besides creator? Messenger. Particularly what title in the Old Testament? The angel of the Lord. Yeah, that's an interesting character study. You trace through the, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament where he pops up. And it's only in the New Testament, by the way. The angel of the Lord does not appear in the New Testament. And that's one of the reasons why we believe this is the pre-incarnate Christ visiting upon people on the earth. Uh, but you see the angel of the Lord pop up. He accepts worship. He says that his name is wonderful. We looked at that passage in Judges. He claims titles associated with God. He has a glorified appearance. I mean, you just put all this together and say, yeah, that's Jesus. Okay. So he was the angel of the Lord and the leader of the Lord's army. In Joshua chapter 5, we see that. So that... That's stuff that Jesus was doing before his incarnation. And I mentioned to you that there were three chapter ones in the New Testament where we really learn, see clearly the deity of Jesus Christ. What are those three books in the New Testament chapter ones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. J-C-H. Uh, my mental initial doesn't start with a C. Does yours, James? Oh, nuts. That would have been great. J-C-H. Uh, <clears throat> John... Colossians, Hebrews. Chapter 1 of each one of those books will take you directly into the theology that Jesus is the eternal God of the universe, okay? Any thoughts or questions on the pre-incarnate existence of the Son of God before I move on to the next thing? Good, good? Well, that's great. If you don't have any questions about the pre-incarnate existence of the Son of God, I think we're doing fantastic. <clears throat> now, if you have questions that you don't want to ask out loud, you can always email me, all right? Well, starting on page 19 in your notes, we now transition from pre-incarnate to incarnate with this very fancy term, hypostatic union. What is the hypostatic union in reference to Jesus Christ? Good. Union of natures, Evelyn says. So, when Jesus existed eternally, in eternity past, did he have a human nature from eternity past? No. He had to obtain a human nature, didn't he, by stepping into creation. Okay, so that's what we're wrestling with on page 19 with the hypostatic union. Um, what's a good way of describing the hypostatic union, or the two natures of Christ. Okay. Yeah, what, what's the title of that lesson? You see page 19 up at the top? Yeah, yeah. I like that a little bit better than fully. You, it's still right, but I, I like truly. Truly man and truly God. Um, he existed on the face of the earth, not as just a true human, but a true human who is also truly divine, truly God. And we focused on Philippians chapter 2, so let's turn there together. Philippians chapter 2, that's where we went in this lesson, to ponder what was going on in this union of natures as the divine joined himself to humanity in nature. Really fascinating thing. So it's not good to say that Jesus was part man and part God, right? Not good. Not good. It's not good to say that uh, Jesus was 50% man, 50% God, right? No, not good, not good. It's not good to say that Jesus has one nature and it's a mix of humanity and deity, right? No, don't want to say that. Don't do that. Okay. 
So we want to just maintain he is truly man, truly God. These are two natures joined together. They don't mix. They don't blend. They don't, uh, you know, become one new thing. Jesus isn't like a transformer or whatever. I've never seen those movies, but I assume that's kind of what it's about. That, that's, that's not what's going on. But he has existed eternally as God, and he added to his deity true humanity. And those two natures are joined now. They're not blended. They're not mixed. But they are joined together. Jesus has two natures. And Philippians 2 gets into this a bit. Let's, let's go verses 3 to 11. Stan, you want to read this one? Philippians 2. It's a little bit longer. 3 to 11. All right, very good. 3 to 11. What a great passage. We see in 7 that key word, emptied. Verse 7, Jesus emptied himself. So you can use your notes, page 19. What's the nature of this emptying? How can we define that in any way? He emptied himself. What does that mean? You should have the answer in front of you. <laughs> okay, so there was certainly a, a humbling that took place, and that's Paul's big point, isn't it, in this passage? That you are to be humble, have this same attitude that Jesus had, humble. That even though he existed eternally as God, he humbled himself. And what did he nullify? Give you a hint with your notes there. What did Jesus nullify? Of? Good. Yeah, yeah. He nullified the expression of certain divine prerogatives. So as God, he maintained, of course, all abilities as God. I mean, the universe was held together by Jesus' power, even as Jesus walked the earth. Okay. However, there were certain expressions of his divine prerogatives, privileges, you could say, that he forsook. Uh, for example, um, being, being worshipped in heavenly bliss by a multitude of angels. He gave that up to be on earth, didn't he? Uh, again, the famous one, we've talked, brought this up a few times, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son, but only the Father knows the day or the hour. That seems to indicate, at least for a time, Jesus gave up the privilege of knowing the day and the hour of his return. So there were, there were just certain aspects of his glorious existence that he voluntarily gave up to serve us in humility. He bled and died. That never could have happened when he was in heaven, could it? That happened here as he gave up uh, that prerogative, okay? And so it is a very difficult concept, this emptying. But I think we can, we can make some progress as we just examine the life of Jesus and what Paul's point was in this passage, okay? Connie? Yeah, yes, and that too, we examine that. He endured true temptation, didn't he? Jesus did. It wasn't a, a fake temptation, but it was true temptation. And he could only be tempted if he was human. And in God's heavenly existence, is he tempted with evil? No. In fact, we've got Scripture explicitly saying in the book of James that God cannot be tempted, and he himself tempts no one. But Jesus was tempted, wasn't he? And Jesus is God. Well, how, could he, how was he actually tempted? Well, he was tempted... Because he took on true humanity, and in his humanity, 
He was tempted. We're not on that page yet. We haven't made it to page 22 yet, but we might in this class. Yes. Oh, you have a, a gift. Okay, yeah, yeah, come on through. We don't have any dramatic music to play or anything. But. Mm. You bet. So Jesus took on true humanity. He added true humanity to his divine nature. Um, he wasn't, th- these natures weren't so separate that, remember we talked about this too, that he, he wasn't acting as God sometimes, acting as human sometimes, kind of like a uh, schizophrenic, is that the right word? Uh, yeah, he, he wasn't like that. It wasn't like a switch, like, oh, my humanity is on now. Oh, now my humanity is off. But he joined the human nature to the divine, and it creates a bit of a complicated situation because he's the only one to ever do that and the only one who will ever do that. Didn't create... Oh, like uh, as far as like a new star in the sky or something like that. Yeah, I mean, and as far as we know, though, um, sheesh, I don't, I don't really know how to answer that specifically, but, but when you think of like cosmic bodies like stars or planets or, or even physical, like uh, new butterflies emerging from cocoons. Well, but those are also natural processes that God has set in motion from the beginning. Right? So, um, so it's difficult because on the one hand it's natural, but on the other hand God is still involved. Okay? We're not deists. Deists believe that God is like the divine watchmaker who set the watch and now he's hands off and everything's just going on its own. So, yes, but, but we have to kind of first establish what it means that God is still creating. Well, what does that even mean? Because uh, on the one hand, you were born of natural processes like everybody else, right? We were all born of this process that God made in motion, set in motion. But in Psalm 139, we're told that God knits us together in our mother's womb. And so it's kind of a both and thing. And so you wonder, were, Jesus, were babies that were born during Jesus's lifetime, was he involved in knitting them together in their mother's womb? That question might be above my pay grade to answer. He, <laughs> Well, that's one way, one probably safe way to answer that question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's, if we aim to be biblical, I don't know how far we can get in answering that question in particular. Okay. Any other thoughts or questions on hypostatic union stuff? You perfectly understand it? <laughs> All right, well, in the next lesson that covers pages 20 and 21... We looked at the work of Jesus in three big events. What are those three big events? Propitiation, resurrection, and ascension, okay? So important words, there's propitiation, which is a word that we don't use very often, but what word do we use in its place most often? Atonement, good. Propitiation, there's resurrection, and that's, this is very pertinent to this week, isn't it? We're entering the Passion Week and the Ascension. All right, so let's ponder these three items for a little bit here. The propitiation of Christ. <clears throat> Let me ask you this uh, as we begin to explain it a bit. 
Why did Jesus die? Okay. Lizzie immediately says, for our sins. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Say you're talking to an unbeliever who's not heard the gospel before. How would you explain that? But why did he, why did he have to die? Why couldn't he just say, oh, forgiven? Good. And that's really what this word means, right? Propitiation. This is a satisfactory payment is a good way to define that. Satisfactory payment. What is the penalty for sin? Death. So Jesus, in order to satisfy what was required for sin, to pay on our behalf and for it to be a satisfactory payment, he had to die. Again, it's not that, uh, we covered this a couple weeks ago, it's not just that he had to bleed. As a carpenter, there were many times, I'm sure, when Jesus bled through his life. But none of that bleeding, just a drop of blood from Jesus, none of that was atoning for sin. None of that was the propitiation, the satisfactory payment. The satisfactory payment comes by death. And that's really critical to understand uh, because you know, the, the New Testament will talk about the blood of Jesus as kind of a euphemism for his death. The blood of Jesus in his death is what heals us. When we sing about being washed in the blood, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? It is certainly true that he bled out, that the blood was offered on the cross, but it was his death that was the payment. He had to die for our sins because that's the penalty for sin is death. The penalty for sin is not just a finger prick and bleed out or sweating drops of blood. The penalty for sin is death. And that's, as Mike said, that is God's wrath for sin. And you have on to the top of page 20, it says Jesus endured God's wrath in his death, but what does that result in for those to whom it is applied? Favor. So now in place of wrath, which abides on everybody in our natural state, in place of that wrath now is God's favor if this satisfactory payment is applied to your account. Because not, not only does Jesus get, your, get you forgiven, where like you're in this debt with God that you can't pay. Maybe you've been in that situation before, you owe somebody money and you don't have the money. Well, you owed God an infinite payment. You could never pay it. Jesus doesn't just get you up to zero. He puts on your account his riches. And now you have infinite positive wealth with God. You don't just have the forgiveness of sins. You have the righteousness of God in Christ. And so that's how we can have assurance. That's how we can have hope. That's how we can be on good terms with God. That's how we can live freely, not wondering if God's going to squash us like a bug because we're so bad. Because if you're in Christ... You've believed in Christ. If that propitiation has been applied to you, once for all, you are good with God. You no longer have a debt. You only have favor. That should make you smile, right? Okay? <laughs> Looking around, not very many people are smiling here this morning. It's like, hey, that is like good news or something, right? All right, so um, that's the propitiation of Jesus. And God's mercy, of course, is at the heart of that. Um, here's, here's another way I can ask the question. 
Um, why, why did Jesus die? We just answered the technical reasons. But what, what motivated Christ to die on our behalf? What motivated him? Good love. God demonstrates his love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8, right? Okay, good. Other thoughts or questions on the propitiation, the atonement? Lizzie? Calvary? Yeah, it's like the, uh, the difference between your bank and your bank account, right? The, the bank is just where those transactions take place or whatever. That's where deposits are made, or, or, but the, it's a location. But the account is what is affected. The propitiation affects your account. Okay. So Calvary is just another name for the place. It's like a proper noun. Other thoughts or questions? No quick moves. I'll think it's a hand. I'm calling you. Okay, resurrection. Let's talk about the resurrection. What was the nature of Christ's resurrection? Okay, it was a death-conquering resurrection. How so? Get a little, get a little more specific. Okay, it was the most important event in history, absolutely. Validation of, yeah, everything that Jesus did and a validation of everything that, prophesied, that was prophesied about him. Um, yeah, his, his teachings, his death, his miracles, all validated by the resurrection. What, what kind of resurrection was this? Okay, physical, good. That, that's extremely important. Um, and what happened after his resurrection? Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yes, very true. And then what happened? Good, good. Yeah, it leads to this, right? It doesn't lead to the grave again, praise God. It leads to the ascension. Because if he died again, that would invalidate everything else too. If he went into the tomb after resurrection, then he's just like Lazarus or somebody else. So not only does his resurrection validate what comes before it, his ascension validates his resurrection. That's important to remember. Yes, that's right. 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is futile. And if he didn't ascend, kind of the same thing, right? If he didn't ascend on high, but he died again, was buried again, and his tomb is with us to this day, and we could just go visit the tomb of another man who died, that's quite a bit different than worshiping the Savior who's alive at the right hand of God, isn't it? The major difference. Major difference. Why is the physical nature of the resurrection important as opposed to a spiritual resurrection? Okay, there's a tangibility. Why, why is tangibility important? <laughs> okay. So he does leave us uh, some pretty compelling evidence, doesn't he? It's not just that he appeared as a ghost, but it's that he really truly appeared. There were witnesses who touched him, uh, and we don't have a body here. I mean, that, that's one thing. A resurrection denier, if you're in conversation with a resurrection denier, you can say, well, where's his body? That's right, yeah. Touched his hands and his side. Yes, that's it. Good. What other aspects to the physical nature are important? Like, why, why is physical important compared to Jesus came out of the tomb as a ghost? 
Yes. Yeah, thinking back to the lesson before this, the hypostatic union, he had a true humanity that was added to his nature, right? And now that true humanity has been glorified. And what does that communicate to us, we true humans, and our future? Yes, yes, if we are with him in the likeness of his death and resurrection, Romans 6 talks about, if we are in Christ, if we are found in Jesus, we will have a body like his when we're resurrected. We will be like him when he comes, 1 John chapter 3 says. And so our humanity will be glorified just as Jesus' humanity was glorified. We will never add to our human nature a divine nature. Jesus, existing as God, added humanity to his nature. If you are not eternal, you cannot be divine. So the fact that you are created kind of shows you that you're just never going to be a God. Okay? But um, as a creature, you can be glorified just as Jesus was in his resurrection if you are in Christ by faith. A physical, true, real resurrection. Uh, we were singing this song in my house yesterday, and we'll, I'm sure we'll sing it next Sunday, if not today. I don't know uh, what Sam has in mind for the hymns. But you know that song, uh, He Lives? Uh, not, not because He lives, but He lives. He lives, He lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks to me along life's narrow way. That chorus ends with, you ask me how I know he lives. What's the answer? Lives within my heart. I hate that answer, actually. <laughs> I, I just don't like that answer at all. Um, so I don't really like that song. I mean, it's, it's fine. You know, whatever. We're going to sing it, and it'll be great. But just so you know, don't say that. Like, I can't imagine being in conversation with somebody, and the person says, how do you know Jesus is alive? And I'll say, well, he lives within my heart. Uh, yeah, can, can you imagine even saying that? Like, I just don't, I mean, now there's obviously a true aspect to that. Yes. Yes. He's made, he and the Father have made their abode in, in us. That's what he promised, right? Okay. But I'm just not going to give that answer ever. And uh, there are m many better things to say before you get to that. And so, yeah, it's, it's not a proof to say he lives in my heart. I'll, I'll sing the words because it's true. It's just not the way I would have written the song. <laughs> it rhymes nicely, though, okay? <laughs> so, you know, that's great. I mean, it, it sounds better than, you ask me how I know he lives. Well, I go to the Old Testament prophecies, and I examine them, and I compare it to the New Testament, and I look at the evidences, you know, and the Roman guards wouldn't have fallen asleep because they had the threat of death, yada, yada, yada. You know, I, yeah. Yeah, we do the short version, that's right. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> How did I get there? What was I talking about? Um, you know, I don't want don't to knock the song too much. It's a fine song. But uh, it was a physical bodily resurrection that all four Gospels talk about, and we have so many evidences from that. If you look at uh, the top of 21, there were several passages listed out there where we saw what Jesus was doing in his resurrected state. Can you tell me some of those things? What did he do after his resurrection? He was touched. Yeah, he, he ate, made them breakfast. Good. Uh, yeah, the appeared and disappeared stuff is um, remarkable. Ascended on high. He could not have done that if he was just merely uh, a human in our state. 
Yeah, it was Acts, Acts 10.41, um, where, where it says that, this is Peter, that Jesus ate and drank with his disciples after he rose from the dead. I think that's just so amazing. Uh, Acts chapter 10, 40 and 41, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. That's important too. Uh, that's a, an important aspect of the physical nature of his resurrection. If he was just a ghost or a hologram or something, perhaps to some people it would be invisible. But in true humanity, glorified as he was, he was visible. But verse 41, it wasn't that he was revealed to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Wow. Physical Resurrection. A hologram can't eat and drink, right? That's just pretty amazing. Uh, you've got the uh, people clinging to his feet, people touching his hands and his side. Physical resurrection. Any thoughts or questions on the resurrection before we move on to ascension? All right. Three, two, one. All right. Ascension. Let's talk about the ascension of Jesus. Kind of like uh, the question I asked you with his death. Why did Jesus ascend? Why? That's a great answer. I, I was actually, as I was making these notes, I wrote that down, <clears throat> the uh, John 14 passage, and we didn't cover that in the lesson, but let's go there together because uh, that is an important one. John chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Mm, let's go... Sheesh. Would someone read John chapter 1, verses 1 to 7? Who can get that for us? Lizzie? And then someone else, 8 to 15. Who can get 8 to 15 after Lizzie reads 1 to 7? 14. And who's got 8 to 15? Okay, Evelyn will read after Lizzie. Yes. And so Lizzie, go ahead and read 1 to 7. All right. That's just one of those passages where it's hard to find a stopping point uh, until you get to the end of the book, I think. <clears throat> but uh, you see at the start of the passage what Lizzie read for us, Jesus teaches that in his Father's house are many dwelling places or rooms. If you have the King James Version, it says mansions. Bad translation, okay? It's not the word for mansions. Um, it's, for, it's just the room for, or the word for rooms, Okay. It just means dwelling places is all that means. And he says that he's going in verse 2 to prepare a place for his disciples. And this place is in his father's house, right? And he says in verse 3 that if he does this, if he goes to prepare the place, he will come again. And what's he going to do? Receive. Receive his disciples to himself that where he is, they would be also. He's going to come again, not in this case to come all the way down to earth and establish a kingdom, but to come at least partway down and receive his disciples to himself to go to the Father's house where there are many dwelling places that Jesus has prepared for us. Okay? That's a pretty amazing passage. So you think of Jesus' ascension, and this is one of the places where he talked about it, where he says he's going to prepare a place for us for those who are his disciples. And as he does this, he actually begins a new ministry. And we'll get into that in this lesson, 
uh, certainly not this week, but his priesthood ministry, it's not only uh, displayed in the Gospels during his time on earth, but Jesus continues to be a priest for us today. And he has a priesthood ministry today in heaven for those who believe in him. And that is pretty amazing, that Jesus continues to intercede for us in heaven. And we'll talk about that more. So he's preparing a place and he's beginning a new ministry. That is why Jesus ascended. Any other thoughts or questions about that? Yes, Lizzie. In, not in the sense of um, physically building. So UDOT isn't up there uh, <laughs> making the streets of gold. <clears throat> if that were the case, then, you know, uh, fall of 2097, it'll be ready, you know, and completed as promised, the signs that they put up. Now, um, but preparing a place, meaning he's going to the cross, he's going to die in our place for our sins, he's going to rise again, and in his work, he's preparing a place for us in heaven, a place that we could not have apart from his finished work. And so that's, that's the idea there. He's not going up there to put on his tool belt and his hard hat and build a place for us. Well, yes, certainly, he's at work. I mean, that's um, a bit of what I was hinting at there with his priesthood ministry. He all, it says in Hebrews chapter 7, I believe verse 25, he always lives to make intercession for the saints. Why does Jesus continue living on in heaven? He's making intercession for his people as a priest. Okay? And so we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. Other thoughts or questions? Okay, a couple more things on ascension. Which New Testament author, this is like Bible trivia, which New Testament author gave us the only two narratives of Jesus' ascension? Luke. And it was in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke. Now, you will find a brief mention, I think just one sentence, about the ascension in Mark's Gospel, the end of Mark's Gospel. But if you've... Um, done any kind of research on this, you know there are some issues that maybe you've heard it in a sermon. The end of Mark's gospel has a couple of question marks in it as far as if it was original to Mark or not. Uh, and that's something perhaps we could talk about some other time. But that's the passage that also talks about handling snakes and drinking poison, uh, that sort of thing. So one day we should do a class on that. That'd be kind of fun. Maybe. <laughs> fun for some of us. Uh, where does the New Testament say that Jesus is right now? It gives us a specific location. Where is Jesus? Good, yes. And what's he, what, what, what does it describe him as doing at the right hand of God? Good, seated at the right hand of God. Yeah, kind of, kind of a weird question because being seated isn't really a thing that you're doing. But he's seated at the right hand of God. What's the significance of Jesus being seated in heaven? Yes. Yep, you go and you take your seat and you rest when it's done, when the work is done. Maybe on a hot summer day, you're mowing the lawn and you sit when you're halfway through, but then you got to go back and you get on that lawnmower again or whatever, right? Well, Jesus is seated because the atoning work is done. The work for salvation is done. He was on the cross and he said, it is finished. He didn't say, we're halfway there. He said, it's finished. And that's a very, very exciting thing. And now he's seated, and that demonstrates uh, that the work is done. Okay? 
All right. Well, before we get into new material, I'll give you one more shot to ask anything about anything we've talked about this morning over the last 45 minutes. And we'll do new material for 10 minutes or so and continue next week. But any other thoughts or questions on anything here? Going once, going twice. All right. Very good. Well, page 22 that you've gotten this morning, you should have received that. Uh, the lesson is prophet, priest, and king. I imagine this lesson, this particular lesson, will take us three weeks to get through. As we get to the king section on the next page, there's a lot to look at. But uh, we will start today with Jesus as prophet. Okay? So let's jump right in. There are three Old Testament offices, prophet, priest, and king that were given to the leaders of God's people. And they are anointed offices. You have at the top of your sheet a blank there. Each of these three Old Testament offices were initiated by anointing. Anointing is the blank. They were initiated by anointing. Prophet, priest, and king. The Messiah, of course, is the anointed one. That's what the word Messiah means. So as we're connecting concepts here, you think about there were these offices that God gave to his people in the first covenant, and they were initiated by anointing, yet they were waiting for the anointed one to come. And the anointed one actually fulfills all three of these offices. We have documentation of this threefold work of Christ being described as early as the third century among Christians. That means there was an understanding that was already existent in the early church. Uh, We have a lot of writings from the early church, you know, not as many as we'd like. There's never as many as we'd like. But as we go back and we read how Christians were articulating the doctrine of this new faith, this new movement, this new religion called Christianity, we see that they were making the connections to the Old Testament and saying, Jesus comes as prophet, priest, and king in his anointed one status, in his status as Messiah. And so that's what we want to examine in this lesson. First that we will look at, of course, is prophet. And um, I'll start with this question. What was the role of a prophet in Israel throughout the Old Testament? There are a couple ways to answer that question, but what do you got? What What was the role of a prophet? Why did God set it up that way? A messenger. Okay. Now, there are basically two main categories of messages delivered by prophets. Lizzie? (laughs) Okay. Okay, yeah. That's actually the main role. You've got uh, prophets in the Old Testament, and you've got one function as basically preachers, right? Preachers who condemned... The sin of the people. That was mostly Israel, but it was not just Israel. There are places, especially in Isaiah, where you have very long sections of pagan nations, Gentiles being condemned. And that makes up, I would say, I've heard this statistic before, but I can't remember. A safe one is 90 plus percent of what the prophets' messages were, were just preachers condemning the sin of the people in the flesh. But what else did prophets do in Israel? What what was God using them to do? 
Yeah, to prophesy. Okay? So that is to do what? Yes, to foretell what God was going to do. That is probably what we most often think of when we, I thought, but your answers maybe should kind of show that maybe not. But for me, when I think of a prophet, I think of this, uh, the one who is prophesying to the people that God is using to tell ahead of time what he is up to in the world. But again, if you look at like a percentage breakdown of what the prophets did in the Old Testament, the vast majority was them looking around in their present day and saying, this is wrong, this is evil, repent, God is going to judge you, you need to change, here's what you are to do, here's what you have been doing, here's what you are to do. Uh, That is the vast majority. And then we get these moments where there's foretelling by special divine enablement when Isaiah says, There will be a child born to us. The the virgin will conceive and bear a child. And he's going to be a suffering servant. He will be uh, bruised for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Uh, uh, You know, all all these things are going to happen to the Messiah. Or the second coming. You read the book of Zechariah and you have these amazing prophecies about what's going to happen when Jesus returns in his second coming. So you have prophecies in the Old Testament, but the majority work of prophets was to condemn the sins of the people in the present. How did Jesus then emulate these characteristics during his ministry? If we're saying, you know, this is what was going on in the prophets in the Old Testament, how did Jesus fulfill or replicate that type of work? Lizzie? Yes. Like, what's an example of a short-term prophecy that Jesus gave? Very good. His death and resurrection. He prophesied his own death and resurrection three times before it happened in his ministry. What's an example of a long-range prophecy? Yeah, good. He talks about there will be you know, time of great tribulation and that Jerusalem will be surrounded. So he, he actually prophesied about 70 AD. He prophesied about the great tribulation of the end. He prophesied about various things. But we also see lots of this too, don't we? Think of Matthew 23, when he's just going off on the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, hypocrites, you scribes and Pharisees. You, you're like whitewashed tombs, and he, you know, over and over again. Or when he um, made the, the whip, and he goes into the temple, and he drives the money changers out of the temple. He was functioning as a prophet there, wasn't he? And condemning the sins of the people in Israel in particular. And so we see this throughout the life of Jesus. And I have in your notes here that there were four main sermons, four main prophetic sermons where these two types of prophecy can be found. I'm curious if you can name them before I give them to you. Jesus' four main sermons in the Gospels. Evelyn takes the easy one, Sermon on the Mount, yeah. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) that's just low-hanging fruit, that's all I'm saying. The Sermon on the Mount, yes. Sermon on the Mount is one of them, so jot that down. Can you think of another one? If you don't have a name for it, could you think of the content or where it is in the Bible? Feeding the 5,000. Let me look at my notes. No. Okay, no, no. There's a little bit of subjectivity in this, isn't there? Because anytime he spoke, you could call it a sermon. But think of another one. 
extended passages in Scripture, unbroken by other people where he's just preaching. I was just talking about one where I was talking about his prophecies of foretelling about the end. Matthew 24 and 25, ring a bell. Matthew 24 and 25, he talks about how there will be great tribulation. There will be times of distress. The Son of Man will be coming on the clouds. And he goes on to talk about these parables with the fig tree and the, the virgins trimming their wicks. Hey, remember all that? That was a big, long sermon, actually. That's called the Olivet Discourse because he was on Mount, the Mount of Olives, Mount Olivet, you could call it, the Olivet Discourse. Okay? There's also Matthew chapter 13 where he gives these parables of the kingdom. He gives all kinds of illustrations. A sower went out to sow and was casting seeds. Or he talks about the leaven that rises, that causes the whole thing to rise. Or he talks about the, um, the mustard seed. It's the smallest of all the seeds, and yet it grows to the biggest the biggest thing. So that's Matthew 13, the, the parables. And <clears throat> there's a really long one in the Gospel of John. If you have a red letter Bible, it's just like chapter after chapter of red letters. Do you know where he was, what he was saying in the Gospel of John? Come on, Bible trivia people. We're talking four chapters. John, starting in John 13 you have what's called the upper room discourse. Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. He washes their feet, and he goes on to teach them about the the new commandment that he gives. What is the new commandment? Very good. Even as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And then he talks about the Holy Spirit. Chapters 14, 15, and 16, he gives a lot of information about the coming Holy Spirit. He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. That's in John chapter 15. Um, So many amazing Uh, statements of Jesus there. But those are the four main prophetic sermons. You've got the Sermon on the Mount, His Kingdom Parables, the Olivet Discourse, and the Upper Room Discourse found in John's Gospel. Okay, Again, there's a bit of subjectivity to that, but uh, those are the main sermons. right? And let's finish by, um, by looking at a couple of passages in John. Let's go ahead and turn there to John 8 and look at this together. Because what we're learning about Jesus' role as a prophet is that it wasn't rooted in his own will, but it was rooted in the Father's will as he was submitting to the Father in all that he did in his earthly ministry. Would someone read 28 to 30? John 8, 28 to 30. Would you like to read again, Stan? Thanks. Are you in 828? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Amazing statement in 28. I do nothing on my own initiative, but he's speaking what? What's he speaking? Good. So as a prophet, I'll use my laser today. As a prophet here, Jesus is preaching, delivering, whether it's condemning sin of the people and teaching them what to do instead, whether it's foretelling what God was going to do in the world, he was only speaking what the Father had given him. I speak these things as the Father taught me. And then chapter 12, 48 to 50. John chapter 12, verses 48 to 50. Jesus speaks to this. 
Again, John 12, 48, it says, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life, Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. This is pretty amazing insight into the world of Jesus as prophet, isn't it? He wasn't a prophet on his own initiative. He was totally, perfectly in submission to the Father as he functioned as a prophet in Israel. So that's where we'll pick it up next week as we continue to examine that office of Jesus. Any final words before I pray. Okay, easy enough. Well, I will pray and then we'll move on to uh, the auditorium and continue fellowshipping. Father, again, we thank you for this day and we ask that you would bless our time together, that you would be lifted up in each heart, that you would be magnified and glorified among us, that you would be honored rightly in this fellowship. God, help us to have a good day for you. In Jesus' name.